Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Luke chapter 2. We'll be working through that section today. Sure, if you ask the Runyons, number six for them, is that correct? Okay. All births are memorable. It was for me, six kids. But I will, I will have to say that my last child was probably, in many ways, the most memorable. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know why this is. All I can tell you is, for me, my five boys were really slow. My wife had longer labor, and we had plenty of time. My first girl, we got to the hospital. She was born 10 minutes after we got there. My second girl, five minutes after we got there. And my last girl, we never made it to the hospital. I delivered her at home. Yeah, that was a wow. You know, where you try to act like you know what you're doing, like, okay, honey, um, the head is crowning, so we're going to go ahead and just, like, do this right here, right now, you know, and, and praise the Lord, somehow God works through. But they're all memorable, but some are more memorable than others. I told my wife after Mary, I said, honey, that's probably a good reason for us to stop, you know. Um, plus, I would have had to move to a huge van to carry the kids after all that, so it got too much. But without any question... The most memorable of all births is in Luke 2, isn't it? I mean, God becoming man. And, and what I want you to do, we're going to kind of work through all of Luke chapter 2. And I want you to watch as we go back and forth through the, uh, we'll go back and forth between these two, two threads that just keep hitting against each other. Wow, this is such a common, ordinary, simple thing. And then on the other hand, holy mackerel, wow, wonder. And you're going to see them colliding again and again. And for instance, dear Mary is always struggling when that stuff is colliding as a mother. So, so watch as we work through this um, together. So we see the birth specifically mentioned here in verses 1 to 21. Notice the setting. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from, this, from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Now folks, just one thing on the surface. In that day, the most powerful man on earth was Caesar Augustus. Hey, he could pretty much do whatever he wanted. He was the emperor. And what he didn't realize is when he got started, this whole registration process for a census, is he was nothing but a pawn in the hand of God. Because God had made a prophecy way back in the book of Micah that said, you know what? The child will be born in Bethlehem. Well, how do you get Joseph and Mary, who are living in Nazareth, to Bethlehem? Ah, you have a census where you have to go back to your place of your family. And because Joseph was of the family of David, that's where he had to go. So Caesar was just trying to make more money. He's a good businessman. God was working out his purposes. It is how it works, isn't it? So you have this setting, and then in verses 4 to 7, 
Notice what happens. And, and I, I'm going I'm to focus in on one section of verse 7 and, 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 and give you a view that I, I hope doesn't ruin your Christmas. I don't think it should. Uh, the, the point is still the same, but I, I want to challenge a tradition, a Christmas tradition. I know you always got to be careful of that, but stay with me. I'll, I'll try to make the point. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. That's where he had to go. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And in saying that in verse 5, the point is this. They were married, but they had not yet consummated their marriage. Okay. And it came about that while they were there, verse 6, the days were completed for her to give birth. Which, which tells us, how long a period of time was it from when they actually got there till she gave birth? We don't know. My guess is at least a month, maybe two. We, we don't know exactly. But there was a little period of time. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, okay? Because there was no room for them. And here's the tricky part. My translation here, the New American says, there was no room for them in the inn. Now, if you have an NIV, it says there's no room for them in the guest room. Well, that's a little bit different than an inn, isn't it? And I, let me just explain to you what I think it's what's going on. A simple birth, it's still a simple birth, but it may not be exactly what we see in the Hallmark card. And it's this. The, the word in just means the word lodging. I mean, literally, that's what it means. Luke uses it one other time in his gospel. And he uses it for the upper room where Jesus met for the Last Supper. All it was, when the other time you, Luke uses the exact same word, all it means is a guest room or a guest chamber. That's all it means. That's how he applies it. Now, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he will talk about a wayside inn, but it's a different Greek word. So I'd want to argue this. The idea that Jesus was born in a stable or in a cave, which is an early tradition. You take it back to about the third century. I give you that. I don't think there's any clear evidence that Luke was saying that Jesus was born in a stable or a cave. It wasn't like they pulled in on, you know, December 24th. And they said, man, I, I need this in this Holiday Inn to take in, take in uh, Mary, my son. You're gonna, sorry, man, we're, we're booked, man. Can't you see no vacancy? But there is a stable cave back there. All right, man, and just back there and then have the baby there. I mean, that's kind of a, the traditional view. Number one, they've been in Bethlehem for a little while before she gives birth. We don't know how long. And this is what I would want to argue instead. If you and I were living in the ancient world, first century, um, if I was your relative living in Bethlehem and you came from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register, do you think I'd send you to an inn or take you into my own house? For sure, you would always. I mean, that is just Jewish hospitality. That's the way they were. Most Jewish homes would just, if it was very simple, would have one room. That's it. That was your living room. And then you put out the mats. That's where you slept. That's how it worked. If you had a little bit more means, you might have a second room, a guest chamber. 
And so I would want to argue that when they came to Bethlehem, she gave birth to her firstborn son, but she wasn't able to give birth in the guest chamber because my guess is another relative was probably already there. You say, no, no, wait, thing finer. How about the manger trough thing? Well, in antiquity, we have evidence of this. It's not at all unusual to have what we might call a split-level house, where I would have a basic room where we lived and did what we did, but because animals were so important to us, I'd have a split level, and literally, down below, we could bring the animals into almost like a garage setting. And I would have a stone trough there, so I could just very easily, from that room, feed them without any problem. That, I mean, to us, that sounds strange. Antiquity, that's what they often did. So I would want to argue this. When they came to Bethlehem, because there was no room in the guest chamber, another relative was right, already there, she gave birth in the basic room where everybody was around, and the only place to put the child was in that stone trough between the actual basic room and what we might call the garage where you would bring the animals in at night. It's still a common birth. It's still very, very simple. And I'll tell you the other reason why. When the shepherds are given a sign, remember what he says? This will be a sign to you. You're going to find this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, strips of cloth, which is what they typically did, lying in a manger, right? And that's going to be the sign. Find the kid in the stone trough. Not find the kid in the stone trough in the stable, because that would have really been a sign. But the angel never says that, does he? Find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes in the stone feeding trough. So I don't want to ruin the homework cards. It's still a very common, common birth. I just don't think it was in a stable. Okay, so for, for, for what that's worth, I just throw, throw that out at you. Okay, so she gives birth, verse 7, in this, major, in this basic room, and then... Conversely, you almost have like a split screen. So, okay, that's what's going on here. Mary's giving birth. Over here, God is going to reveal himself to shepherds, right? Familiar text. Notice what it says. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And again, we don't know this for sure, but this is probably in the springtime, which means Jesus probably wasn't born in December. Could have been, okay? Probably not, all right? And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terribly frightened. Have you um, had a chance sometimes to go camping where you're out far away from any lights anywhere? And you can just kind of sit back and look at the stars at night. It's glorious, isn't it? Well, that's kind of where these guys were. I mean, they're, they're just out on the hillside, I don't know, telling jokes, whatever you do as a shepherd, as you're watching over all these the sheep. And, you know, and probably the stars were really... And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And not just an angel, but it's like the whole place is lit up with the glory of God. What would that have been like? Scary, no doubt. And it was, right? So these guys are frightened to death when they see this. And, and the angel says this in verse 10, don't be afraid. Sometimes I think with that, like, it's easy for you to say. But anyway, do not be afraid. And this is why. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. 
For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, you're just getting used to this one angel giving this really good, really good news. And then all of a sudden, the whole choir man just surrounds you. A host, an army of angels everywhere. That would have been unbelievable. Why does he go to shepherds? Because if the good news is for shepherds, the good news is for everybody. So this incredible, glorious message is entrusted to a bunch of shepherds with sheep dung on their sandals and smell on their clothes. I mean, you know, they're shepherds, for goodness sakes. What do they do? Verse 15. And it came about when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began to say one to another, hey, let us go straight to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. God has just said something incredible, that there's a baby there that's the Savior for people. Wow, we got to, like, go. They came in haste. They found their way to Mary and Joseph. And they found the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be the, the, uh, the host that invited Mary and Joseph into your house? I mean, you already know it's going to be a busy week or a couple weeks because they're back to register and, you know, she's going to have the baby here and got to be ready for all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you have to put her in the main room and the baby's got to go in the feeding trough and all the stuff. And then these shepherds come pouring in. And they're saying, yeah, that's exactly what we had heard would happen. And you know what we are? And they begin on talking about the fact that there, in that feeding trough, is the Savior of the world, right there, the Messiah. I don't know about you, but man, if I'm the host about this time, I'm thinking like, what in the world? Aren't you? I mean, taking all, because that's why everybody, including Mary, Joseph, and anybody else standing around are going like, Good night. This is amazing. And shepherds go, yeah, yeah. And he said this and this and it was all bright and they were talking. We completely and we came here and he told us to be just like this. And it was. And here we are. Now we're leaving now. But man, we're cranked. <laughs> Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What would that be like for the mother? Ladies, you've had children. What is that like? Max Lucado wrote a book years ago called Jesus Came Near. And in it, he has, oh, what is it? I think 25 questions he wanted to ask Mary. I should have brought it and read it. I forgot to bring it with me. But, 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 it, but it, it's, 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 it's like, what is it like for you to hold this baby that if you dropped him, you could kill him? 
and yet he is the Messiah of the world. I mean, what is that like for a mother to say, no, no, I nurse him. I change his diapers. He doesn't live without me. Yeah, and he's the savior of the whole world. And and, and she's just going like, whoa. Hmm. I got to think about that one. Do do, do you see? Do you see the tension with this? (laughs) It's an amazing story. The shepherds go back, verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Well, this was a faithful couple. And they wanted to go right by the protocol. And there are certain protocols. On the eighth day, a child is going to be circumcised and named. And then if your firstborn is a son, it takes 40 days till the woman is considered purified. And then you go up and you present the child to God at the temple. And if you have some money, you present a lamb. And if you're as poor as dirt, you just do two turtle turtle doves. That's what you do. And the reason we know this couple is poor as dirt, guess what sacrifice they do? They give the only one they can afford. You see, it's very basic. So that's exactly what happens. Luke says, let me just tell you this story, man. I don't want you to miss any of this. So when eight days were completed, verse 21, before his circumcision, His name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. In other words, we learned that back in chapter 1. Here it is. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Because that's what you did at your firstborn. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Exodus 13. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, Leviticus 5, because that's all they had. Mary and Joseph were incapable of bringing a lamb. They couldn't have afforded it. Don't you love that? Jesus, in some sense, was born into poverty. Wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't even middle class. It was the lowest level of a child placed in a feeding trough. Incredible story. So here it is, 40 days after the birth, and they know what they need to do, so they make their way from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem because that's what you're supposed to do. And they're just trying to obey the law. That's it. I mean, they heard what the angels had said and through the shepherds and great stuff, and so now they're here in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden... Out of nowhere comes Simeon. Notice what the text says. And behold, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This was one holy guy. Goes on to say this. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we don't know how old this guy is, but can you imagine what that's like? He had been, it had already been told him by the Spirit, you won't die till you see the Messiah. So every day he's coming up, or whatever often he would come up, he'd come up to the temple thinking, I wonder if today, I wonder if it's today, I wonder if it's today. And how long did that go on? Months? Years? I don't know. I don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But for a period of time, 
And this day, he got his wish. Unless he wanted to live longer, I guess. Because you know, once he sees Christ, he's leaving shortly thereafter. But anyway. Um, so he came into the spirit in the temple, verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, that's all they were doing. They weren't out there to say, hey, let's go up to the temple and really show off Jesus. Were they? No, no. They were going up to the temple because that's what you're supposed to do as a Jew. That's all. That's all. He took Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou hast let thy bondservant, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. He says, I'm waiting for the hope of the world and I know one thing. As Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 60 and 61, he will be a light. And this light will shine not only to Jews, it will also shine out to the Gentiles themselves. And, and Simeon says, I'm holding the light of the world in my hands. God, I'm ready to go. You see? I mean, he's just, he just honored off the charts. And he goes on to say this. Oh, look at verse 33. Again, look at the response by the parents. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Do, do you see the struggle? 40 days with a baby. You know what it's like the first 40 days? You know how your sleep patterns get impacted? You know, you know all the stuff. And so they go up to the temple, and again they hear something similar to what the shepherds were saying. And they're going like, wow. It's just a lot to take in for this couple. And Simeon blessed them, verse 34, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child, this glorious child will be a divider of humanity, though. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, Mary. To the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Brothers and sisters, it's one of the first times in Luke's gospel that we're, we're introduced to the fact that this Messiah is not going to be accepted by everybody. He will be the fall of some and the rise of others as Jesus steps on the scene and he takes our hearts and he opens them up so we can see what exactly is in there. And what you find isn't so nice. And there will be certain religion of the religious establishment that will want to close their hearts off, who can do it on their own. They're self-righteous, and they will oppose Jesus. And there will be people who are considered wicked, vile prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and all those. And they will open their hearts up, and they will let Christ reveal them for who they are so that they might be forgiven by him. And it will be their rising and their falling. As hearts are opened up. Isn't that the glory, glories of the gospel? Conviction of sin is like surgery. 
it hurts good. I mean, you need it, don't you? And God will reveal as he's working in the hearts of some and sinners will say, I'm a sinner and I need help. And God will say, my son, and he'll be forgiven. And changed. And redirected. And others will hold it tight. And Simeon says, Mary, as you see all of this, as a mother, there will be times as you watch his public ministry that is as if somebody takes a sword and drives it into your heart. Because it'll be painful to say, they're doing this to the Savior and my son all at the same time. Yeah? Yeah, Mary, that's, it, it, it's a blessing for you to have him, but just know there is pain connected. And then, verse 36, right on the heels of all this. So, you know, you're kind of reeling with this. And then all of a sudden, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. In other words, if you were a Jew ever going up to the temple, every time you went up, you know, somebody would probably, and I know it was big. I know there's like 24, 25 football fields, big area. But still, at, from time to time, you would go up and say, every time I come up there, man, there's Anna. I mean, she's there. She's praying. She's fasting. She's just, she's one holy woman, and she's a prophetess, so you got to watch what she says. Verse 38, and at that very moment, she came up, began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, so Simeon told the baby and talking all this stuff to the family and Anna's coming up and saying, look, 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 look. You know what I mean? Hey, did you see that? You know, I mean, well, it must have been a sight. A lot of commotion. Wouldn't you love to have been there? But all Luke tells us is this in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they were just doing what Jews are supposed to do. They returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And we have to wait 12 years till we hear anything else about Jesus. And I have to tell you, this troubled a lot of people in the early church. And so there's a whole bunch of uh, what we might we would call apocryphal gospels written in the second, third, fourth century of, of other things Jesus did as a child. Because people were thinking like, 12 years, man, like what, what's going on in that period of time? Well, Luke will tell us the only part of it that's really important. But all these other gospels are, well, you know, a bird ran into a wall one time and Jesus healed it. And, and, well, we know Jesus didn't do any healing, don't we? His first healing was done where? The wedding of Cana. John tells us that. So, so all this stuff that's written, it's just not true. But you couldn't help, people couldn't help but say, I wonder what Jesus did for those 12 years. Luke says, let me give you a, 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 a summary of it. I'll give it to you right here. Verse 40. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And Luke says, that's all you need to know. Really? And here's, here's the point. This, this, this is an amazing thing. I want to talk about it again in two weeks when we get to the temptation. Jesus grows in wisdom. Does God the Father need to grow in wisdom? No, he knows it all. 
He applies it all perfectly. But when Jesus became the God-man, one person with a divine nature and a human nature, he functioned fundamentally from his human nature, but he was still divine. And it's because of that that Jesus, as a man, had to grow in wisdom. There were things his mom taught him that he didn't know. Now, he said what he could have known because his divine nature could have kicked in. Fair enough, but he said he chose not to function that way. He would, he would instead function out of his human nature. You say, well, that's a bit of a mystery. I know. But isn't it amazing that God would do that for us? And he pointed to my nature, could have kicked in. I know. But he didn't. And he submitted himself to being a man. He was never less than loving or less than holy than God ever. But he chose not to function out of that divine nature in these other ways. So that literally, Luke says, he had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow physically. He had to grow in all these kinds of ways. And that's what you need to know. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Because Luke's really seems to me pretty clear the way he does this. Because we have this event when he's 12. And then, then we wait another 18 years till we hear from him. So virtually 30 years of Jesus' life was on the backside of a place in Nazareth where there was very little known about him. And he flashes on the scene for three and a half years from the age of 30 to 33, and then he dies and changes the world. I mean, one of my questions when I get to heaven is, it's like, what you do in all those 30 years? I know you did carpentry, but like, what was that like? What was it like working beside Jesus? And one of the things that we would have to say is, Jesus continued to grow and to learn during that period. It's an amazing thing, folks. Well, Luke says, I got another event I want to talk about, but I want you, he says, think about it like this. Jesus is growing. You're his parents. You're Joseph and Mary. For 12 years, you go up to the temple for Passover every year. You just do the whole thing. You come back. You take care of Jesus. You feed him. When he falls, you, 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 you hug him. Do all the stuff you need to do as a parent. All that stuff. So that's been going on for 12 years. You do have these prophecies and that the prophets had said, that Simeon had said, and Anna had said, but that's been 12 years. Now, you know there's something going on because you know who he is, but you're thinking, he's my boy. He listens to us. We teach him. He's my boy. And Luke says, you know, God has this way of reminding us who he really is. And so we come to this event when he's 12. Verse 41. His parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when, he, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, oh, incidentally, teenagers, don't ever try this one at home. Okay, just, I, just, I, need, I just want to be really clear on this one. Okay. Um, and as they were returning, after spending the full number of days for the Passover, 
and unleavened bread, so they've been there for, you know, over a week. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, which on the surface doesn't sound too bad, except that his parents were unaware of it. And his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Did you ever leave your child somewhere unintentionally? I don't know about you, I grew up in a family with eight kids. And periodically, one of us would get left at church. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, just, just kind of what happened. And, and I always knew, you know, when I saw my parents, it was going to be a double sword. They're going to come up and first of all, be relieved that they found me. And then I was in a lick of trouble <laughs> for not being wherever I was supposed to be at a particular time. You know how that worked, right? But this was much worse than that. Look, you come to Jerusalem in caravans because it's dangerous. So they come down with this caravan to do the Passover through a whole day, a whole day traveling. I mean, think about it. You're not talking 15 minutes to the church. A whole day out, Mary's saying, you know, I haven't seen Jesus yet. Oh, I'm sure. Well, we'll just look around. And they look and talk and nobody, he's nowhere to be found. They have to travel a whole day back to Jerusalem. And we're going to find on the text, it takes them a whole nother day looking in Jerusalem till they find him. Now, how would you feel, parents? <laughs> oh, man, I, I would be relieved and livid all at the same time. Aren't you? Wouldn't you? I mean, I, I read what Mary does here. I, I, I just say, Mary, you are much kinder than me. <laughs> so notice what happens. And it came about that after three days, and I think the three days would be from when they initially left Jerusalem rather than three days looking in Jerusalem. That after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. <laughs> his parents saw that. I mean, so they come up and... There he is, and it's obvious that Jesus is very significant. I mean, he's, he, but how are they feeling? Look at verse 48. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And I don't think the astonishment, well, part of it was probably he's teaching these rabbis. That's probably part of it, but I think it was probably more than that too. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a pretty reasonable, kind thing to say. I don't think I would have quite said it that way. But you know, she comes up and basically she says, son, you're rude. Isn't you? Hi, we, you know, maybe Joseph's back here going, honey, let me handle this. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but, but, but. But she, she basically kindly is saying, this is absolutely wrong. You know what I would say? If he was anybody else other than the Son of God, then he had just sinned. Isn't that true? Because it would have been rude. 
children, you can never do that. You can't say, hey, Dad, remember what Pastor Doug was talking about, preaching and that, but, well, I only did this for a couple. Hey, it's not going to work, kids. It is not going to work because you're human. That's all you are. You're in big trouble, okay? <laughs> so don't try it at home. But, but, but if he is the unique God-man, and if his parents who have for 12 years seen him grow, 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 need to be reminded, don't forget who he is. Then this becomes a graphic object lesson for them of what they need to remember for the next 18 years. Do you see? This is sin only if Jesus is only human. But if he's the God-man, it's a teaching moment for his parents. That's the difference. Look at Jesus' response. It's the only way you can understand this. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? What I wonder, and, and I, I, I know none of it. I don't know about you, but I can't wait till I get to heaven. I have a million questions for so many people. Don't you? Like I'm going to pull Mary aside. Hey, Mary, now come on, man. And so I'm going to conjecture here. I have no idea what I'm saying right now. Whatever. I, I wonder if as Jesus has been growing with the family over the years, if they've been talking about the scriptures, talking about the importance of the Messiah, and talking about what it's all about. And, 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 and Jesus has been taking all that in, knowing it, it's him. And so when he says, Mother, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? In other words, We've been talking about this for years. Have you forgotten? Because this is a reminder for you. At the end of the day, Jesus was saying, I am the unique son of God. I am not just your little boy. I'm the savior of the world. I am much more than you could possibly imagine. Although I live with you. Verse 50. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. I mean, look, they needed some time to process this too. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And I love this, folks. Look at this. He continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. And in favor with God and men. And that's it. We will wait 18 years. Till we hear another word from Jesus. And Luke says. Luke says. I don't know how else to say this. I, I wrote it in your, your, your notes here. I don't know if you're looking at them or not. You don't need to be. But Jesus' coming. Was amazingly simple. And yet simply amazing. I don't know how else to say it. But, but, but if I'm Mary or Joseph, I'm caught up on the amazingly simple. We're poor. I'm a carpenter. We go to the feast. We have a baby in a feeding trough. We raise them. We teach them. We feed them. Simple. Life is simple. But every time they get near Bethlehem or Jerusalem, it's simply amazing. 
Savior of the world. And, and I've thought about the paradoxes here, folks. The light of the world living in obscurity for 30 years. The one who will save the world is a baby in a feeding trough. He's growing and he's living in subjection and submission to his parents. But he is their God. I mean, I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, wow, what is that? And Luke says, before I tell you anything about his public ministry, like Mary, let that sink deep into your soul and ponder it. What does it mean for Doug Finkbeiner that God would love me so much that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, would become a man and would largely live his life fundamentally from his human nature and would live in subjection and submission to parents and suffer death on a cross and everything else he went through for me. What's that mean? He lived a simple life. Remember what he said? Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said, sometimes I'm homeless. <laughs> I live simply. People provide for me. Simple life. Life-changing death. I mean, that's our Lord, folks. And what, guess what, I, what, what I'd like you to do this week? So I'd like you to think about the fact the humility of Christ and his amazing glory all comes together in the incarnation. What does that mean for us? Well, it, it certainly means we can live lives that are marked by humility, by his spirit, right? We should, right? I mean, Jesus is our example. But it also means we should just pull back sometimes. And I had this experience when we sang these songs this morning again, where you just kind of pull back and you just say, oh, how he loves you and me. I, I just, God, I, I can't understand it. I can't fully explain it. But man, do I love it. Do you see? Let it come deep into your soul. Ponder and wrestle with the humility and glory, the simplicity and the wonder of our Lord all coming together that we might thank him by our lives and seek to emulate in the way we live our own. Father,